growing up here in the city, the city influences me, the people in the city, and my connections to that as well. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or for folks who want to develop their own fonts and letter forms for the screen or relief printed work. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the edition's debut, the 25th edition of the Speedball textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' work, and innovative technical insights that is sure to inspire and appeal to scribes across the spectrum of skill and experience. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Dewey Tafoya, Master Printer and Assistant Director of the Professional Printmaking Program at Self-Help Graphics. We talk about growing up in L.A. in the 1970s and 80s and being exposed to the incredible Chicano murals growing up at that time. How Self-Help Graphics was started by a nun and two queer Mexican artists, bringing art to the people through the pandemic, and what Self-Help is doing to celebrate its 50-year anniversary. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to help yourself with Dewey Tafoya. Hi Dewey, how's it going? I'm doing great, Miranda. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm really excited to to speak with you today and learn more about your practice and, of course, self-help graphics, too, and what you do there and this whole wonderful thing you've got going on. So oh, thank you for yes. joining me. You're welcome. I'm really excited to be talking with you today as well. So before we get into the questions, would you introduce yourself and let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Yes, of course. My name is Dewey Tafoya. I'm a Los Angeles visual artist, screen printer, of course. I grew up here in Los Angeles. Right now, my current job title is Master Printer and Assistant Director of the Professional Printmaking Program here at South Hub Graphics. Some of my other titles in the past have been teaching artist, artist, and, and volunteer for lots of things as well. Beautiful. And so you said you grew up in LA, and I know that L.A. as a sense of place is really large in your practice. And so I'd love to start by talking about what that experience of growing up in L.A. when you did was like and what were those early influences artistically on you? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up in 70s, 1980s, 1990s, Los Angeles, the old dirty LA, as we like to call it, I think now, or just in general, it's always changing and shifting, just because I feel like here in Los Angeles, we like to tear down history and build something mm. all on top of it and forget it. But for me, definitely, I grew up in Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles, so definitely culture. I'm second generation Mexican-American, Chicano. So my parents also grew up in the same neighborhood I grew up in. So I, I was born into a history of the neighborhood I grew up in and, and definitely that pride feeling of connection to where I live at and my neighbors. And it was really enforced to me at a young age to connect with neighbors and help them out and, and volunteer and I think growing up, my my dad, I guess for the lack of things to do or, or the lack of money, um, we would oftentimes just drive around the city and just mm. drive around 
and look at things. So I, I think for me, that was really big in, in, in my influence for, for everything really is just knowing, knowing my city and knowing what's there and who's there and, and, and what's going on, I think is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you're driving around the city, were you getting a bit of exposure to art, maybe seeing graffiti, maybe seeing architecture? Did that come into your worldview at all at that time? Definitely. Definitely growing up here in Boyle Heights in the 70s, 80s, I often tell folks and, and a lot of kids that I work with that I didn't really know about art galleries or, or, or art in, in, the, in, in the, the big capital letter art mm-hmm. that were often taught in school. What I did know was murals and the Chicano murals here around Los Angeles, which also like incorporated culture and history and social justice and, and, and seeing those images are, were a big impact. And of course, gang graffiti and graffiti in a neighborhood was basically calligraphy lessons and kind of walking around mm-hmm. and kind of seeing like what looks good and what doesn't look good. And, and I guess establishing my, my art criticism at a young age, walking through the alleys of Boyle Heights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that connection to the community too, through that experience. You know, the fact that you're being exposed to this image making, not in that huge separation, as you say, in an art gallery or museum where this is made by old dead white guy from 300 years ago, or this is made by someone who's so insanely famous that you'll never be able to touch them or meet them. But this yeah. had to have been by your community that it was the people that that you knew, that you shared the neighborhood with, they're the ones creating this visual culture. Yeah. And, and oftentimes if you walk by a mural, the artists are actually there touching it up and, and mm. working on it. It's also that connection as well. So, so definitely, I feel fortunate that I had that growing up. I feel like now there's not as much murals as there used to be, and now it's a little bit more advertisement. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah, I was thinking too what you're saying about Los Angeles tearing down history, and sort of hoping that those Chicano murals have still survived that you got to be exposed to growing up. I don't know, though. Yeah. Yeah. I think some are around just in pictures. So, so hopefully they can be talked about in the future. I've been hearing a lot lately about people realizing too late the incredible history of artistic production that came through Chicano mural practice and realizing that this is such a swath of history that just got bulldozed for parking lots sometimes. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. It you know. paved paradise and put up a parking lot. <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you start your journey as a image maker, as a creative person yourself? You're in this neighborhood, in this space, in this time where you're getting all these influences. Were you always a maker? I would like to think that I've always been resourceful just just because growing up you know, we didn't have much so it was having to use what we had. So funny story is as a kid I really wanted an Atari. I wanted to play with an Atari so bad and my dad would be like go outside and there's like a hammer and some wood and some nails. I'm like an Atari. <laughs> But it was the idea of going out and trying to figure something else out and making something. So I've always been interested in art and creation and and people's ability to make things out of nothing. But growing up, I think not really knowing any artists or or even knowing what that was or how to go about that, it wasn't really a thing growing up. Like it wasn't like a a goal or a destination for my future. I think for me growing up, things were more in the day, like trying to survive during the day or trying to survive each day and trying to figure things out like that. It wasn't until later on in life, probably in my 30s, that I I always like would draw stuff and create stuff. And I had friends who were artists and musicians. So I think being around that really helped me to to start making stuff myself. Like going to the museum and seeing stuff and being like, man, I could totally make that, but I'm not making it right. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. So I think it was just pushing past that, that, 
that point of, okay, I'm going to sit down and actually draw something and make something and figure that out wasn't probably didn't happen until probably my 30s, my early 30s, <laughs> and trying to figure that out. I think my 20s were more trying to figure out life and trying to work and mm. trying to survive and yeah. trying to get trying to get through things. So it wasn't until my early 30s that, that I started like making some drawings. And a, a friend of mine actually bought me a silkscreen kit from Speedball. So the, one of those ones that you buy at the hobby store. And I had that kit and she was like, oh, you make drawings? Like, this will be cool. I looked at it and I was like, oh man, like this seems really hard. Like there's chemicals involved and there's like having to like use chemicals and do and have different reactions. And I think at the time it wasn't for me. So I put it mm. on the show. But wow. I mean, that's yeah. so funny that like you, you, you weren't, you didn't have a vision, right. Of your future. Like, like the, the light breaks and the, the sunbeam hits the, the screen printing kit. You just were like, nah. <laughs> like, that's really funny. Hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's so many more steps than just drawing. Yeah. yeah. Especially, I mean, I was a little bit older, so I didn't really have guidance or, or, or somebody there to be like, hey, you should try it like this. So, so I think it was also like having to go about it and just do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was that your very first introduction to printmaking or were you sort of aware that printmaking was a side of the art world before you got the speedball kit? Yeah, I, I definitely was aware that, that printmaking was a, a big part of the world. I think uh, all this was happening at the same time that I was coming into South Hub Graphics. I had just finished college and I had taken a seminar class where I had a volunteer for a nonprofit. So I picked South Hub Graphics mainly because it was close to my house and I didn't have to travel. <laughs> uh -huh. But also, you know, I mean, as a way to pinpoint a place in my neighborhood that, that I, I didn't really know too much about, that I knew that there was things going on there. So that was my way to get my foot in there and say hello and see what's going on. So I think being there and, and working there initially as an intern and then as a volunteer and then later as a teaching artist, I was around printmaking. There was a master printer here who I would observe and talk to all the time. And he would get mad at me because I think I would ask questions and, and leave dirty screens around. But I, I think just trying to figure that out. And at the same time as when that, that kit came in came in. So it was definitely something that where at first I I was intimidated. Um, but then I just dived in full, full blown. And I read every book that I could read. I looked at every video that I could look at. I talked to every person that wanted to talk to me about it. Uh, again, I was a little bit older, so it was hard. I couldn't be like, like, like a youth and like, hey, help me. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. what's, what's this old dude you know, want to learn all this stuff <laughs> So for me, it was it was just sitting down and 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 actually doing it and, and trying to figure out like what and how and and and, and how it's going to look trying to do it. So I would do stuff not knowing how to do it and make mistakes. And, and I think for me that was a learning process. Yeah, absolutely. And I my mistakes. Yeah, and I love that you're speaking to the experience of being someone who came to this, as you said, a bit later in life, not the trajectory of I was a high schooler and then I went to college and for four years in college, I studied printmaking and I had all these mentors and these opportunities. And then I went to my MFA and then this, the, the path that a lot of people take in their road to printmaking, because there are a lot of roads to printmaking. And it's really significant, I think, to hear the story of someone who came to it a bit later in life and still found their way forward. And Probably, at least I know, as someone who themselves has sort of taken on projects in my 30s, that I am grateful that I did it then because of everything I brought with me, because of all the life experience that I took to taking on the project. In the end, it was much more rewarding and I was better at it because I wasn't doing it at 22 when I didn't know shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, and I haven't even thought about it like that at all either. Like, man, you know what I mean? Like I said earlier, the, the 20s were those years of trying to figure life out. So this is something that came to me uh, a little bit later, a little bit after school. And it was something that I was like, man, like, where has this been all my life? Yeah, yeah. This is really cool. And it, it definitely changed my traje trajectory because I think I was going to school to become a high school English teacher. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think coming to South Hub Graphics and, and just meeting people and, and, and networking with artists and, and building friendships and, and just learning, 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 put me on a different path as an artist. And eventually I, I was able to return to working in schools, but as an artist. So I was the cool art teacher that could go and, and do these cool projects and, and say bad words. and Yeah, yeah. And like leave as a cool guy, you know what I mean? So it, it worked out. And I think, but a lot of work went into it. A lot of work went into going from, yeah, printing that first image on a shirt to, to where I'm at now. I think a lot of learning, I'm still learning and I still want to learn more. I feel like having that desire to kind of learn pushes me forward every day. Mm, yeah. And it's interesting to hear you talk about the fact that you were initially interested in teaching English because words play a big part in your practice. So I feel like you you haven't left words and interest in words and language totally behind. Would you say that's true? I would say that's true. I would also say, too, that that idea of creating stories and creating stories through through layers of images is something that's that's carried through from my my studies as an English major to the, the, the art making where I'll make an image and it'll look like a simple image but it has a lot of meaning behind it mm. uh, so definitely or I'd like to think that I'm making images like that yeah absolutely uh, I mean would how would you sort of Describe your current practice in terms of what you engage with and, and where you're showing and, and the issues that come up through your work. Yeah, I feel like the issues that come up are just issues that happen in life. So there's, there's nothing really that, that I'm chasing. It's just things that are happening that, that I want to address. Uh, especially growing up here in Los Angeles, so, so the ideas of, of, of gentrification, of, of poverty, of, of lack of resources for our community, of equality, and all those things really happen through artwork, especially for artists of color. I, I think we talk about those things without even, they just happen in the art naturally, organically. But those are definitely things that influence me growing up here in the city. The city influences me, the people in the city, and my connections to that as well. Yeah. I feel like Los Angeles is like a reoccurring character in what you do. The, the, the city and the experience of being in the city, I think particularly in the time period that you've lived there, is really present. As you ta say, talking about gentrification and these things of neighborhoods changing and traditional communities being pushed out and all of that is really present. And that's something that you've been witness to sort of firsthand. And I've seen images of your work out in the wild too, on uh, outside and on light poles and that sort of thing. So it's, you're definitely not making work that just stays within the ivory tower or the art world, it seems like you're making work that is graphic and can be confrontational, but is also really present and to an audience that's not just the people going to places that are white cubes. Yes, definitely. And that's totally my goal as an artist is to create art for everybody, really. When I first started making prints, I printed posters and it was cool. And I was like, hey, cool, I have these posters. And it's like nobody really wanted them. <laughs> they were like, oh, it's too big or I can't uh -huh. really pay for that now. So I had this really idea of, you know what, I'm going to make art prints, but I'm going to print them on shirts. And for me, that was a really great way to get my images out there into the public, but also share with friends who are also artists and have them wear them. So I think for me, that was a really big playground for me was the idea of making shirts and creating shirts and even doing live printing and having images that are tester images that I wanted to see how people would react and doing those shirts and even printing them for free. Sometimes if you brought a shirt, I'd print it on it. Mm -hmm. no so it was a really great, great way for me to get my images out there and not have them just in one place and, and have them moving about the city, moving about the country. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, I saw somebody wearing your shirt at the swap right. meet. I saw somebody wearing your shirt. Or like, 
these other places. So for me, that was really cool. A while back, maybe a few years back, I had went to a friend's art show, and it was a show about prints. And one of my friends there was like, man, how come you don't have a print here? And I was like, well, I don't know. That's a good question. But he was like, but I see lots of the artists here wearing your shirts. So he's like, <laughs> so I was like, you know, what? like that was a really, like, really cool enlightenment is to, is to know that my friends are, are supporting me, you know, mean even better than be, being at being in the gallery, I guess. I think that this happens with screen printing maybe more so than than any other medium. You can see it with, with woodcut too in the print world where you put it on a piece of paper, it can be $150. You put it on a shirt, it's $20. <laughs> and it's just a funny market force. But in the end, if somebody buys your work on paper and they put it in their home, how many people are going to see that? You know, How often do people host people at their home? And you have put it on a T-shirt, and that person is out in the world as a billboard for your message for potentially years. Yeah. Yeah, and, until that shirt falls off, and I have lots exactly. Of yeah, I, I wear that shirt all the time, and it has holes in it. Like I need to get another one. Like when are you going to do it again? So, so definitely. I mean, I do enjoy having my pieces in the gallery as well. Like, I'm not going to lie. Totally. Yeah. It's like it's like different. It's like apples and oranges, right? It's it's different <laughs> yeah. ways to engage with your practice and different ways for people to engage with your image making and your message. But it is that such a funny sort of irony about how the 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 substrate just determines the value in this really extreme way when it truly could be the same image created with the same screen. It just changes it. So, yeah. yeah. I, I think the value of a print in general is just such a, a big topic of conversation with all yeah. artists. Like, they're like, oh, I made this really great print, but somebody was like, I'll give you 20 bucks for it. And it's like, like, you know what I mean? So it's also lots of folks don't know how it was made and the work that went into it. So it becomes something like, oh, that's a cool like print. Like, so yeah. So I, I think they associate that with like a digital print or yeah. like something that comes out of your computer. You're like, no, I sweated and I cried over this. Like, this was something that, that took like I mean weeks and months and sometimes years to to think about and create and strategize and figure out. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I think part of it is lack of education. You know, as you sort of say, oh, people don't understand the difference between the actual process of making. And then also there's a strange sort of sort of preciousness that some people have to build into prints to make them feel like they're valuable, I think. Mm. And sort of what I mean by that is, is saying, no, this is an addition of 20 and each one is the same and they're perfect. And you need, you're they're interlease interleafing them with this tissue paper and you can only touch them with white gloves. And there's this sort of real, I don't know. I mean, I, saying dog and pony show makes it sound a little bit too disparaging than I really mean it to be, but it is sort of a performance around the work. And that doesn't just happen with prints. That happens with, with all art. When, when you're out there, and I would imagine working with communities like you do and showing kids and getting people exposed to it, it's, it can be the exact same process as these works that get the kick glove treatment but it feels more accessible to the people who you're working with and and it it makes it feel like art is for them. And so it seems like it's a a double-edged sword in the sense that we want the work to be valued, we want people to respect it, we want artists to be compensated well. Yes. But that also requires this performance that then puts up a wall between Joe on the street feeling like they have access to what the art is. Yeah. Yeah. It's this whole idea of screen print versus serigraph. Right. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> where they're both the same thing, but, you know, I think that French word elevates what it is. And that's when you put the white gloves on and you're at the museum showing it. But a screen print is just a poster of a band or, or, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. But they're both made the same way. Yeah. And, 
They both have value. But yeah, that was pretty spot on. The whole idea of elevating things in a way that highlights and, and, and makes it better. Like, I mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, I wish that there was a way we could just totally walk the middle path of saying that this is precious and it's accessible because I think both things are true, but there's not really a paradigm for that in the way that people interact with art objects. It's like either it's a poster that someone's going to tear down or it's a t-shirt that's going to fall apart or it's this thing that you don't don't touch it or it's on the wall in the museum. Like, yeah. don't get too close to it, that thing. Yeah, I like the um, idea that they, they all can be so for sure. Definitely. So, so how long have you been the master printer at Self-Help Graphics? I've been the master printer here officially, like officially as my job title for about a year and a half. Unofficially for about maybe five years or so, I would, yeah, I first worked as like a contract. So whenever they needed somebody to help out in the print studio, they would ask me to pull some prints. So I was working along with other master printers who were also doing that same thing. So they didn't really have anybody that was permanent at the time. So about a year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, they put out the, the, the application for a, a permanent master printer. And I was like, what the hell? I'm going to, I'm going to apply. And, and and hope I get it. <laughs> yeah. And then, so what is your role there? Are you working with people coming in to take classes? Are you publishing for established artists? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? On a day-to-day basis is keeping the studio clean. <laughs> but, uh-huh. A very you know, important part. <laughs> a very important part. But mainly my role is to work in collaboration with artists and, and residents. So the professional printmaking program here in South Hall Graphics was something that was started in the late 80s and early 90s as a way to formalize, like we were talking about this whole idea of, of access and accessibility, but it was this idea to formalize the print process and have artists connect and work with a master printer to create a limited edition screen print in process. So they're working on it together as they go and sharing tips. Mainly it's the artist's work, but the master printer is just there to guide and add advice and, and, and add elements of experimentation as well. So that was something that started in the 90s. So that my job is to connect with artists and work with them in the studio to help them create their, their, their prints and, and help them make their ideas come to, to life. And who are some of the artists that you've worked with that you're particularly excited about or a project that you really want to highlight that was really rewarding? Um, one of the most recent projects that we finished this year was a print atelier, which is a fancy French word for a print workshop or, or uh-huh. a if we're going to say it in Spanish. And it's also trying to rethink this language too as well, right? Because the whole idea of a serigraph and atelier are language that separates the idea of protest posters and art to fine art. I think we're on, on that fine line here as well. But last year, we were able to create space for Indigenous women artists. So we had a print atelier that included seven Indigenous women. Uh, and having them come to the studio and create prints was a really great process for me and just making sure that, that they're highlighted. And that print project came out of another print project called Maestras, or Teachers or Masters, which is a print atelier that Self-Help has done. Oh, I don't remember the number, but this was a different iteration of it. They started back in the early 90s with a group of artists, all women who had come together and come together and create prints, but also network and critique and have, have space for that as well. So working in that project, I was working with an artist named Nani Chacon, who is from, I think she's from Santa Fe. She's going oh, cool. to be mad at me. I think it's either Santa Fe or Albuquerque. <laughs> and just talking with her and and, and she's a, a Dime and Chicana artist and, and just thinking about the, the artists who we like. And, you know, we talked about this idea of creating an atelier for Indigenous folks, which turned into Indigenous women, and just going through and contacting them and having them come to the studio and work on stuff and share space with them. It was a really great time. That's beautiful. And so once the prints are made, does self-help graphics have a gallery aspect of what they do? Are they selling the work to fundraise the other projects? Do they... 
artists get to take some? What's the logistics of actually coming and creating work in the context of these ateliers? Yeah, it's all those things. Uh-huh. When an artist is invited, they're invited to create an original art piece. So it has to be something new that they're making. Once the edition is done, we do something what we call a split. So half the edition goes to the artist and half of the edition we keep. So for example, the artist keeps all the odds and Safab keeps all the evens. So if we get an edition of 60, then 30 prints go to the artist and 30 prints go to self-help. Out of the self-help prints, there are three or four of them that get archived in different locations. So one of our main archives is the UC Santa Barbara SEMA archive, C-E-M-A. I'm horrible, and I don't remember what the acronym is. But we could try uh, and make it up, like uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, something. But I, I think for an emerging artist or even established artist, it's really great to know that your print is going to live on somewhere that folks have yeah. access to, it and, and grad students can use it as a, a, a study piece or, or or something that connects to whatever they're writing. I do know that the Self-Help Graphics Archive in Santa Barbara is the most researched. So definitely it's something that exists there as well. In the past few years, also large groups of prints have been acquired by the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. That's also a really good resource for young and upcoming artists to have something archived in in LACMA or the LA County Museum of Art or the Mexican Museum of Art in Chicago. So I feel like those are just like little things that happen that are are really great addition to an artist coming here as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's a great opportunity, especially for young artists, as you speak to, to have a work in those big name institutions, those lines on CVs, they make a difference. Yeah, definitely. And of course, all artists for sale. So definitely talking with the artists and figuring out pricing. We were talking about pricing earlier and and the value of their print. Um, and, and, And definitely it is something that goes back into the print studio and we use that money to help fund everything that happens here as well. We used to and I think we're changing that this year, but we used to, all the prints that we make throughout the year. So for example, if we worked with 20 artists through the whole year, the prints don't usually get released until the, until June when we have our, oh, annual, gotcha. our, our annual print, our, our print fair. Uh, so they'll be exhibited there and they'll be showed there. But I think we're going to change that and we're going to release prints maybe quarterly. Uh-huh just as a way to get them out there because it's really hard to like not talk about them for like a whole year. <laughs> Especially if you worked with a really great artist. Um, for example, we worked with a collective called La Pistola recently. They're young folks from Oaxaca and we made their print and it's like, oh, cool. Like we're not going to show it until June. So yeah, let's not say anything about it. So, so I think that brought up the conversation of, of what we need to reconfigure um some of these old practices that maybe came out of the 80s and 90s and how do we revamp it now in the age of social media where we could promote and show things online and sell them and definitely create that space for prints to sell. Yeah, absolutely. And and get them out into the world, get them into collections, get them on people's walls and people connecting yeah. with them. I mean, that's, yeah. that's why artists do this is to create connection with other people to get their message out there. And so that's all part of that ecosystem for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like back in the day, you know what I mean? Before social media and all that stuff, it was like, yeah, our annual print thing. And that was like the release of them. But now I feel like there's so many different ways and options that we can release prints and get them out there. We should be Absolutely. Because as I'm sure we'll get into, self-help graphics is about to, come upon its 50th year anniversary next year. And so that's an incredible longevity and story. But also in 1973, no one could believe that we would be carrying around computers in our pockets more powerful than the computations that put a man on the moon, that you could buy a print Literally while you're sitting on the toilet, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, it's, no one could have predicted the ways in which the world would change. And so I think what's so great about having a, a living, breathing organization like this is that it can evolve 
to meet the different ways that people now interact with visual culture. Definitely, definitely. And and even as artists ourselves, like we're, we're, we're evolving into that as well. Where now we can make a print and have it still wet coming off the press and take a picture on mm-hmm. Instagram and show it and be like, hey, you want to buy it? This is our pre-release. And then that way you're, you're generating money and you're surviving. So, so definitely mm-hmm. it, it all works out. Could we maybe talk for a moment or two then about the story of self-help graphics, because it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting one. It, it begins with a nun. Is this correct? It's, to- <laughs> it's totally correct. It's a total 1970s story that begins with a nun. And artists named Carlos Bueno, Antonio Ivanez, and, and Frank Hernandez, starting off in a garage painting. They were mainly painters. Sister Karen, the nun, was the printmaker. She was a contemporary of Corita Kent. Mm-hmm. And I know there's been talk saying that that Sister Karen was a student of Corita, but but it turns out that she was more of her friend and colleague. Mm. So, so definitely the, the idea of printmaking and having that as a, the, the impetus to drive the, this whole force. But yeah, it started off with a nun, two queer Mexican artists wanting to create art and having this idea of making an art space in the garage. Probably as an artist myself, it was just a place for them to go and hang out and make mm-hmm. art. It turned into people coming by and like, hey, what's this? And then them trying to figure out how to make it into a, a, a community thing. So in 1970, they started off as Art Inc. And like you said, in 1973, they did the nonprofit process and turned into self-help graphics and art. And I think from there, it was just them moving into a bigger garage, a Mm -hmm. a bigger space. And I think if it's anything like it is now, there's people walking in all the time and like, hey, what is the space and and how can I be involved? So I'm sure that happened a lot and, you know, and and people heard about it and talking to lots of the older veteran artists who have come to the space. They're like, yeah, we heard about this printmaking nun and we wanted to go check it out. Um, Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were part of, of another print space here in L.A. that no longer exists called Met Chicano Art Center, which was contemporary with self-help graphics back in the day. So a lot of those folks had heard about it and went from there to self-help graphics to be like, hey, what's going on? I heard you're making prints. I heard you're making art. So that's how it, it, it came together. Yeah. And you know, 50 years later, we're still here. It's beautiful. And and why the name Self-Help Graphics? I've always been curious. Do you know the story behind it? You know what? I've heard different versions of it. And when I first started coming into the space, I was told that this was a form of what it meant. So the idea was the idea is to have... How can I say it? So if you come here and you have an idea or you have something, you can't say, you guys should do this. If you say it, you have to be the one to do it. So the idea of of self-do it, like self-help or or, or being able to create a space that lacks resource or, or, or in a space that lacks resources, how do we make things and how do we help ourselves? So self-help, total act of not relying on somebody to help you create something but definitely focusing inward and trying to figure it out. It came about, but but you know, I, I don't really know. And I know every time I say self-help, they're like, self-help? Like, like, like what? So it's really hard to grasp. I think once they get it, it makes sense. Well, and I, I think it, it works in the sense that it's memorable, even if it is a bit curious. I think that that's something too, is that even if, it might be memorable because it's a bit curious. I don't know. Maybe maybe Sister Karen's the only one who really knew. But I, I often wondered if it had something to do with the time period it was founded because I feel like the early 1970s, there was this idea around self-actualization, self-help coming out of the sort of awakening of the 1960s and all of that, that there was a lot of energy around this idea that we could improve ourselves through – self-exploration too, which of course art is a wonderful form of self-exploration. But I also love what you were saying too about it's it's you going and making and doing the thing that you want to see in the world. 
Yeah. And I feel like how you just explained it, it was really great as well. And I'm sure it was a combination of both because it did become a space for folks to come and create art in a time and in a neighborhood where there wasn't any spaces like that, where you could go and create art and even art as like a therapy. Definitely yeah. some, some of the first artists were veterans from Vietnam trying to find a place to go and, and be creative. And maybe that was their, their, their self-help journey. And so sort of throughout the history of self-help, I get the impression that engaging with the community and taking art to the community has been a big part of it. And I was really curious about the undertaking of the Barrio Mobile Art Studio. And if you're still doing that or, or how does how does taking art to the people work and look historically, but then also in a COVID world too? I mean, that's got to be a whole nother set of things. Yeah. So for those of, of, of us who don't know what the Barrio Mobile Art Studio is, the Barrio Mobile Art Studio began as a truck in the 70s. So South Hub Graphics developed the idea of taking art to, to the community, to schools. So they fixed up this UPS looking truck as like an art studio. So of course they did printmaking, screen printing, and batik, which is a very 1970s thing to do, mm-hmm. uh, with also with curriculum. So they had curriculum and, and kind of ways to approach teaching methods and, and a certain pedagogy that was peer-to-peer teaching. Mm-hmm. So, for example, South Hub Graphics is also known for Dia de los Muertos. It's going to be our 50th Dia de los Muertos. So one of the things that they would do would go to a community and do workshops for Dia de los Muertos that were flower making or, or, or screen printing, but also to be able to talk about why they're doing it, how it relates to culture and history. So it, it was a little bit more than just going and doing workshops. There was a lot of work behind it and a lot of grants I had to get. So that's how it started. And unfortunately, in the 80s, uh, they decided to stop doing it and focus on the print studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was something that disappeared for a while, although they did have artists that would do workshops in different community spaces individually. But it wasn't until 2015 that we kind of got together and we're like, you know what, let's relaunch it uh, in a different way. And also realizing that lots of, of institutions were, were just coming into the idea of like, hey, maybe we need to take art to the communities. <laughs> so we're like, you know what, hey, we have the edge on this. So let's think about it. And during the time I was working with South Hub Graphics uh, as a teaching artist. So one of my main things was going to different community events and doing things and setting up screen prints and having fun and doing these workshops. So we decided to relaunch the idea of the Bottom Mobile Art Studio again. And we started with a cohort of 25 artists who we did, oh, I forgot how long it was. Maybe it was a good five weeks of training and talking yeah. about curriculum and definitely inviting artists who had their own specific practice and having them think about ways to incorporate their practice into like workshops, but definitely starting off with a print workshop that, that I figured out that was really easy, which is making paper stencil screen prints and going mm-hmm. somewhere and giving people pieces of paper and they could either cut with exacto blade or scissors or even tear up and it could be a social justice image or just words or text or designs and just printing those on the spot. And that was like our first workshop that we knew that we could take and put in different places that anybody could do really. So we relaunched in 2015 and we've been going strong. We don't have the truck anymore because I feel like nobody mm-hmm. wants to have the truck. <laughs> so it's pretty much artists going going out in, in their own cars with like a little wagon and setting up and popping up in different parts of the community. So I think we'll do schools, we'll do community events. Most recently, we've been doing workshops at the Getty Museum here in Los Angeles. They have an exhibit where they're showing the Mayan codices. Oh, so beautiful. It, it's a Mayan codice workshop. So now they're not even screen print workshops anymore. It, it's different forms of stamping and, and coloring and creating things. So definitely, you know, with the vision of bringing art 
to communities that lack the resources, but also sharing it with other communities as well. That's wonderful. That's so exciting. And then, so through COVID, did you all just sort of put a pause on things? Did you try to go online? What was the strategy? Yeah, I feel like like everybody else, we shut down and we're confused and scared and, and we're kind of yeah. like, what the heck's going on? Like, how are, are we going to like do things? So virtual, I, I think we had to go virtual. And, and it was also a way too to also, we have all these artists who are not working. How do we engage them and and keep them working? So the idea was for the, for having art, for for to create these virtual workshops and even have artists create their own virtual workshop and, and for us to show them through our webpage. So as we mentioned, the 50th anniversary is coming up next year. What are the plans? How can people engage and help you celebrate even if they're not necessarily around LA? Definitely. And I know Betty, our executive director, would say donate. Have folks yeah. donate. Real important one. Yeah. I think our 50th is going to be next year, but we are, are going to celebrate it over the course of maybe three or four years. Nice. Uh, yeah. And, and one of the things is that next year in early spring, our, our building is going to close down for renovation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's going to be under renovation for maybe two years. So we are going to be working remotely and, and not have an actual building space, but we still will be working. So for example, next year for Dia Los Muertos celebration, it's going to be moved to a, a local park. And, and these are all things that we've done before as well. So it's not like they're, they're things that are new, they're just things that are different. And we'll definitely be celebrating our 50th with exhibitions throughout Los Angeles at different spaces as well. So it's also a way for us to connect with other spaces that are doing the same work and collaborating with them and having our artwork there and having an exhibition here and a workshop in different spaces. So it's also like taking the body mobile idea and using totally. it in different ways as far as like workshops, as far as like exhibitions. And, and also thinking about ways to collaborate with, with other institutions as well and, and having us be there for an exhibition throughout the years as well. I think for me and the print studio, it's dif- difficult because uh, staff and, and, and Body Mobile can, can all exist virtually, but the studio is something that needs to be in person. We did work virtual through the pandemic and, and, and I did pull some additions working virtually with artists who never came to the studio, just going back and forth over the phone and arguing about how colors look <laughs> via the iPhone. It changes everything. It but really it, does, was, yeah. yeah. So that was also a new experience is being able to have to work virtually. And I think we're all forced into it and, and we're, all, we're now all pros at it. Wink, wink. Uh, but, but definitely trying to figure those things out now as well. So the print studio is right now we're in process of talking about folks of either having our own space for rent, which we might need to do, but also talking about collaboration with institutions here in Los Angeles who would allow us, for example, the local college here um, and you know, working with them to have a print space for us there as well. But also how do we incorporate classes and, and even have the, some of our artists lecture there as well. So just thinking about new ways to exist until we come back to our wonderful new building. I think, too, it sounds like you're taking it on as a potential strength, as the fact that, like, okay, we don't have this centralized space anymore, but this is going to force you and give you the opportunity to be out more. And and as you say, get the, the Barrio Mobile spirit to proliferate throughout the institution. And yes. the the physical space of an art institution is in and of itself a barrier for engagement for some people. They just are going to look at a building that says arts on the outside and they're going to say, well, that's not the space for me. But if you're in a park, a park is a space for everyone. And I think it could really, well, probably will be challenging. I'm sure in the end, raise the profile of self-help graphics because you have no choice but to be out there engaging with people, spreading the good word of printmaking and the accessibility and the fun and everything that comes with it. So I, I wish you, yeah, the very best of luck in it. And I'm excited to 
follow you and see what comes out of it. it it'll be great. It'll be great. Yeah. I, I feel like um, through our misfortunes of having to move and having to change locations have brought us here to this point where it's like, okay, this is going to happen, but we know that we can do these other things to exist still and still bring art to the community and still have that space for folks to come. Mm-hmm. We also have uh, youth that come here as well. So also creating space for them to still have a place to go to, to meet up, to be creative and meet with their friends. We have a youth committee and we have youth artists that work. So definitely there's lots of components happening. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, where can people find you, Dewey the Artist, and then also find self-help graphics out on the internet and they can follow you and donate and buy work and do all those good supporting things? Definitely. Self-help graphics, selfhelpgraphics.com. You can also find self-help graphics on Instagram and Facebook if folks still use Facebook. I don't think they've they have youth, but I don't know if they've, the youth have talked them into starting the TikTok yet. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely the website, selfographics.com and Instagram. Myself, you could find me on Instagram. My name, Dewey Tafoya. I post stuff randomly. Yeah. Beautiful. That's how you could find me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dewey, for taking an hour out of your day to chat with me. And I really look forward to helping spread the word about self-help and the 50th year anniversary. And I hope that we can maybe meet someday. I love LA. I'm always tired of being cold in Santa Fe. (laughs) So maybe I'll get to come by and, and see the studio in the next few months. And if not, maybe some sort of mobile event. It definitely, you're always welcome, friend. You're always welcome, Miranda. Come visit and, you know, come and enjoy our 65 degree cold weather that we have here. (laughs) If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, You can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest is Diana Gaston, director of the Tamarind Institute. We talk about how one becomes the director of internationally renowned printmaking enterprise in the first place the ambitions of the Institute's founder, June Wayne, to save the medium of lithography, and if it worked, what kind of research is done at Tamarind, and working with some of the most prominent artists in the world. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.